Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston. And I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. Hi, guys. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. Just some housekeeping stuff. I really just wanted to take this opportunity to say thank you. You'll be receiving this podcast on Thanksgiving week. And one of the things I'm thankful for this holiday is the audience of Boston Confidential. I never dreamed it would get so big so fast. I honestly didn't think anybody would listen. But here we are. And I had just gotten an email from one of the podcast hosting services. And they alerted us that we're doing better than 86% of all podcasts in the United States. So that kind of blew my socks off a little bit. So thank you. To the audience, and we've just surpassed 120,000 downloads in a little over a year. And that's kind of unheard of in the podcasting industry. And I owe it all to you guys. So I just want to take this opportunity to say Happy Thanksgiving to all our fans in the United States. I wish you the best holiday. When you sit down and give thanks, please remember to be thankful for the United States of America. We're a free people and we're a strong people and we're more united than anyone thinks. So from my family to yours, happy Thanksgiving. All right, guys, let's get to it. I just wanted to touch base a little bit on our previous episodes. We did a brief series, a two-part series on the Boston Strangling case here on Boston Confidential. It was extremely well-received and I got a ton of emails on it. So much I didn't know. Again, one of the things that kind of stood out about that time, the early 1960s in Boston, was you could live in almost any neighborhood with any type of job. It was so much different than it is today. I mean, rents in my former hometown of South Boston are about $3,200 for a two-bedroom, you know. And in those days, you could live over in the Fenway, and it's a little bit better, right? It kind of blows my mind a little bit. Also, one of the things with the Boston Strangling case, the brutality seems to have been watered down. People really don't remember the brutality of this case. It was completely horrendous. The guy was the poster child for capital punishment. But again, F. Lee Bailey saved his ass. Also, with the Boston Strangling case, I just found it difficult to portray to you how fearful the women of Boston were. But we still may get an accurate portrayal. They're actually starting to film the remake of the Boston Strangler, originally starring Tony Curtis, this time starring Kira Knightley. I don't know who the male lead is on it, but it would have to be better than the original just because the times didn't permit you to talk about these types of atrocities, really, in film or any other type of media, really, in the early 1960s. So 
I'm looking forward to the remake of the Boston Strangler, and maybe when it comes out, we can do some type of group review of the movie. You know, go see the movie, and we'll talk about it on the podcast, figure out a way to do that. Anybody has any ideas on it, feel free to get with me, Barry at bostonconfidential.net. But for right now, let's jump in the Wayback Machine to 1991, and we're headed to Beverly, Massachusetts. And we're not headed there for anything good, I'll tell you that. This is the horrifying story of Amy Carnavale, who was age 14, and suffered a type of domestic violence that nobody should ever suffer, never mind a young lady just coming into her teenage years. It's horrific, and I'm going to give you a warning right now. It is brutal, and this podcast depicts supreme violence against women. So there's your warning. Now we have to get on with it. All right, so Amy Cannavale lived in Beverly, Massachusetts. She lived with her mom and dad. I don't know if she was an only child. I don't hear much about siblings. And again, sometimes in these cases, the family wants privacy. So I don't intrude on it, but I don't see any mention in the general media about siblings. I may be wrong. Don't hold me to that. Feel free to email me if that is wrong. But Amy lived with mom and dad in Beverly. And she was in the eighth grade in public school. She was 14, and to see pictures of her in 1991, she had this big hair. I don't know if people remember. Girls had this astronomically large hair with Aquanet hairspray, and that hair wouldn't move. So they just called it big hair, and it's kind of funny to see. That was definitely the style back then, and I'm sure Amy would have cracked up laughing seeing pictures of 1991 in the rearview mirror. Unfortunately, she wouldn't get the opportunity to do that. But let me tell you a little bit about Beverly, Massachusetts first. Beverly is a pretty tony community on Boston's North Shore. It's just north of Salem, Massachusetts, and Peabody fits in there as well. But more people are familiar with Salem due to the connection to Halloween. But it's just north of Salem, Peabody, and south of Manchester by the sea. These are all pretty beautiful towns, typically New England. The income levels in Beverly, it was then and is now a pretty well-heeled community. And they did, from what I remember, have a good public school system. So Amy Cannavale was 14 in the eighth grade in public school. And somehow she met a young man age 16, and his name was Jamie Fuller. And he had moved to Beverly more recently than the Cannavales. I think the Cannavales had planted roots there for a long time. But Jamie Fuller and his mom had recently moved to Beverly, and they resided in Beverly's public housing community. I don't think that resembles anything in the city of Boston in terms of public housing. So don't get a large housing project, you know, brick buildings and all that in your mind. I've been by these suburban housing authorities and the apartments are actually pretty nice. But what goes on behind closed doors in some of these apartments is difficult. Obviously, the people are struggling, but I think more so in Jamie Fuller's family. At a certain point when Jamie was young, I believe his father ran out on the family, and hence 
their journey to public housing in Beverly, Massachusetts. But to be quite frank, being in public housing and in Beverly is a much better option than being in Boston, quite frankly. So he had the opportunity to take advantage of the local school system. But it was said that Jamie Fuller's mother, and I believe her name was Celeste Fuller, she had a problem with alcohol as well. And I think that was the issue that broke the marriage up. And I believe both mom and dad had problems with alcohol. And Jamie Fuller, age 16, would soon develop his own full-blown alcohol problem by about age 15. And we're going to get into that a little later. So when Jamie moved to Beverly, Massachusetts, he was kind of a scrawny little kid. But pretty soon as he came into high school, from eighth grade to high school, I believe, somehow he got turned on to weightlifting. And he became pretty stocky. And I think that gave him a level of confidence because a lot of people said he switched from a happy-go-lucky kid to a walking a-hole when he started working out. And also at this time, somehow he got turned on to anabolic steroids. He was a steroid head. He'd inject them into his buttocks. He'd take pills. And if you have any experience with these steroids, it seems to turn the person who's taken them. Remember the Jared Remy case. Jared Remy was also on steroids, and you know what he did to his girlfriend. But Jamie Fuller was on the same type of steroids that, you know, American football players would take. And it was believed he was taking way too much. So Amy was 13, 14, and this kid is 16. It's just a big difference to me. I'm sorry. And I don't think I'd let my daughter, my 14-year-old daughter, date a 16-year-old kid. She's in eighth grade. He's in high school. But if you look at pictures of these two, they do look like the all-American couple. I mean, they're both pretty good-looking people. Amy was absolutely stunning. And although Jamie was kind of getting bloated from the steroids, he was still a very good-looking kid as well. So they made a a sharp-looking pair. But pretty soon it became apparent to Amy's friends and also Jamie's friends that Jamie was massively possessive of Amy. And it was to a level that you would think wouldn't happen as teenagers, right? But this is actually what happens most often. And I have a statistic here I want to read to you. Girls and young women aged 16 to 24 experience intimate partner violence, that means domestic violence, at triple the national average. So this is where it's most severe, and I didn't know that, but this case kind of illustrates that fact. Amy was totally under this kid's thumb, and I think she kept it from her parents. Amy wasn't always a shrinking violet here in this situation. She gave it back to him pretty good, but she would have to defend herself, and he would hit her. So this was definitely a domestic violence-type relationship, and it was toxic. And Amy tried to break up with him several times, and this one time, it seemed to be taking. As we came up to August 1991, Amy began spending time with other guys. They officially had broken up. And Jamie Fuller would say to her friends, I don't want Amy anymore, but I don't want anybody else to have her either. 
And again, I'm going to pause here and say this. I've said it before on the podcast. When you hear the words or some uh, similar statements, if I can't have you, nobody can, head for the hills because that person is a violent bastard and it's only going to get worse, okay? Jamie would openly talk about killing Amy and I don't know what was going on with his friends. They seemed to enjoy this type of talk with this kid and he was kind of a bully, so he seemed to be the type of kid you didn't want to piss off. And don't forget, he's raging on steroids and he's working out every day. And to see pictures of him at that time, at age 16, he looks like a grown man. It's obvious he's on something and working out hard as well. So Amy, at this point, coming up to August 1991, she made a big offense against Jamie Fuller. She went to the beach with another couple. She seemed to be the third wheel in this little date, really. It's just a bunch of teenagers going to the beach. But Jamie Fuller couldn't handle that, and he hears about it. And he says to his friends, this shit's going to stop. I'm going to kill her. I'm going to kill Amy. That's what he says to these kids. And now he starts to make a plan to make that happen. And I don't know what his friends were thinking. I just really don't. So on the day of the murder, it was August 23rd, 91. And Jamie Fuller knew that Amy liked to cut hair. And she was trying to blow Jamie off. Didn't really want any more contact. But he calls, hey, we're just friends. Can you cut my hair? We're just going to hang out. The guys are here. So Amy goes to meet him. And I don't know if she actually gives the kid a haircut or not. But they end up in the woods by something called the shoe pond. There's a shoe factory around there. And I believe there's an enclosed pond nearby. And the kids use this as an area, you know, to get away from adults. I'm assuming to have a few beers and whatever privacy kids can muster. So again, I'm not sure if this haircut ever takes place. But Amy agrees to meet with Jamie Fuller and these other kids are present. The other guys that are present are also friends of Amy's. She has no reason to suspect that anything bad's going to happen. She knows all these guys. She thinks they're her friends. And Michael Mallett was there. He was age 19, and he's going to play a large role in this. Dominic Sciola, age 17, was there that night. And two other individuals are sort of implicated in this case Scott Ward is said to have been there at Shoe Pond when Amy was murdered and Mark Donahue. And it's just a crazy thing. I, I don't know if these kids knew what Jamie had planned for that very day. That's never really been ascertained. Now, it's also been said that Jamie was drinking during the day here, but that's nothing new. He had totally lost all control and I don't think there was a lot of oversight at the Fuller household. And I believe they might have drank at the house. It may be that type of house that we all know where alcohol is not exactly frowned upon. But there would be testimony later that sometimes Jamie would drink a case of beer a day or a half gallon of vodka. And these kids were all drinking very, very heavily for the age group. So they lure Jamie to the area of Shoe Pond. I think it's a wooded area and it opens up to the pond. I don't know. There's some accounts where some areas are fenced in here. 
but I'll get to that. We're going to have to get through this homicide, though, guys. So Dominic Sciola, Michael Mallet, Mark Donahue, and Scott Ward are all present in this wooded area. But Jamie and Amy go off to have some privacy. And again, I don't know if these kids knew what he was going to do. But Jamie Fuller grabbed Amy Cannavale, told her that he loved her, and stabbed her with a hunting knife in the stomach. And he was basically eviscerating her. He'd later tell people that he could feel the point of the blade coming through the other side of her body, and he was stabbing the hell out of her. And he was in an absolute frenzy. So not only was Jamie stabbing this girl he supposedly loved, 14-year-old tiny Amy Cannavale, she was telling him as he was doing it, right? Amy was telling him, her killer, that she loved him. And that pissed Jamie off because Jamie told his friends that after this was all over, guys, okay? So as she's bleeding out, as he's stabbing the hell out of her, she's telling him that, I love you, Jamie, I love you. And he didn't stop. And actually her saying that and gurgling on her own blood pissed him off, pissed him off so much he put his foot on her throat to make her end come more quickly. So now Jamie's covered in blood. He leaves his dead girlfriend out there. And he walks out to his friends and his arms and his torso is absolutely covered in blood. And Mr. Fuller was absolutely proud of what he had done. At a certain point, these goofballs leave the area of the pond and go to one of their homes and they have some type of Kool-Aid, red Kool-Aid. And Mr. Fuller, being the comedian he is, says, yeah, this is kind of just right for the occasion, meaning like blood, right? So, man, this is some difficult stuff. But later that day or the next day, Michael Millett and Jamie go back to the pond to dispose of the body. They wrap her up and tie her up and actually throw her over a fence. That's where I get the, this place is at least partially fenced. And... Michael Mallet would later say that, geez, it's just horrible. She smashes to the ground after they throw her like trash over the fence and she makes a bone crunching landing. And Jamie Fuller says, now don't break on me, Amy. And at that point, they climb over the fence and dispose of Amy's body within the pond. They sink it. And as the body's sinking, Jamie Fuller says, to the body of Amy Cannavale, it sucks to be you, Amy. And both these upstanding young men, these brave, powerful men, leave the area. Now, Mr. Millett, I don't know what I can say about this kid, but Amy's reported missing. So four or five days go by. On the fifth day, anyways, Michael Millett, he was age 19 at the time, seems to have a come-to-Jesus moment because he'd have to know, right, whatever booze and drugs come out of your system, that none of these people are going to stand up when the police come and knock. And everybody knew that Jamie Fuller was abusive to Amy. 
And as soon as her body was found, the police were going to be at his door. And I think it was a rush to get to the prosecutor's office first. So Michael Millette, age 19, leads the police to the body. He goes to them, rats out his friend. I'm sure he thought that Jamie Fuller would do the same to him, but he went first after five days, after five days of a harrowing search. He leads them to Shoe Pond and Amy's body, and he tells what he had done as well. What he had done is dispose of the body, and I don't know if he knew this was coming. That changes the scenario a little bit for me. If these kids knew what Jamie Fuller had planned, it's hard for me to believe that they didn't know because this guy was such a braggart and a walking a-hole. I don't think he could control himself, but... I'm not entirely sure. And one problem with this case, it's so old, the records are really just scattered all over the internet. I did my best on it. And evidence pertaining to Jamie Fuller's trial, I have a lot of that. I just don't have a lot of information on these other kids that were involved. But I'll tell you what I do know. What I know is this, Jamie was picked up the day that Michael Millette had told the police. They went right to his house and arrested him. They had testimonial evidence, and later they'd find a ton of physical evidence, and I believe the murder weapon and all that. And these other kids, which Fuller should have fully anticipated, testified against them, okay? So Jamie Fuller, the trial is mostly for show. The defense actually stated that steroids had changed his young mind in all this but what are you going to do okay you can go to a mental hospital for two years after eviscerating a 14 year old girl stomping on her face and sinking her body in a pond well you say it sucks to be you amy no it doesn't work like that the commonwealth fully prosecuted this kid and i give them kudos for that i believe it was middlesex county so I believe that would have been Tom Riley's office. And I do have some political disagreement with Tom Riley, but in these instances, he's pretty law and order. So they did a good job. And naturally, they end up with a conviction, right? You have three or four witnesses against you and all of this stuff leading up to it. He was telling people he was going to kill her. And then he did. Jamie did an interview on Channel 7, I believe it was WHDH. I was trying to find it. I can't find it anywhere, YouTube, Google. If anybody comes across that, please email it to me at barry at bostonconfidential.net. And he apologizes, Jamie Fuller apologizes for what he did, but I don't buy it, not for a second. The real Jamie Fuller was out at Shoe Pond on August 23rd, 1991. So he gets convicted, and he's a juvenile at the time, don't forget, but they charge him as an adult, and he's convicted, and he receives life without parole, and man, could I say that this kid deserves the death penalty? There's a case to be made for it, but he is a juvenile, right? So I guess we're stuck with him on the planet anyway, right? So Michael Millette, for his part, I guess going to the police after being such an a-hole, a monster. This kid's a monster, this Millette, right? He helped do this. And he testifies against 
Fuller, and he ends up on a plea bargain for a two-year sentence. So I think in Massachusetts, you'd probably serve about one year or less on that type of sentence. It's crazy for what this kid did. I get it. I always use the analogy of Mr. Martirano, who committed 20 murders for the Winter Hill Gang, and you needed him to testify against Whitey Bulger, who committed 100 murders, right? So we're all just swimming in blood, but we have to point in the right direction. So I guess you have to use the witnesses you have to use. And that's what they did with Michael Millett. Kid ended up serving a year, year and a half, something like that, I'm sure. And also those two other kids, Donahue and Ward, I believe they testified against them as well. And the other kid, Mark Demule, I think his name is spelled D-E-M-E-U-L-E. He also took some type of plea bargain. Actually, I think he had a grant of immunity. So I don't even think he was charged. So all those people ended up testifying against Jamie Fuller. And so it's curtains for you, right? You go into Walpole. They took him from the cell in the courthouse to Walpole State Prison. And let me tell you, that's big boy jail. And he's 16 years old, but that's exactly the type of punishment this kid deserves. I actually remember in the news when this kid was sentenced, it was people around town saying, it sucks to be you, Jamie, right? A play on what he said to Amy Connovale. And that was kind of a catchphrase in the 90s. It sucks to be you, right? I think they mentioned it on The Sopranos at one point, right? I'm sure that was later in the decade. At any rate, I never loved the saying because I did always attribute it to the Cannavale murder. So you would think this is where the story ends. But no, this is Boston. So stay tuned. This kid, Fuller, Jamie Fuller, is 16. He goes off to prison. I think he turns 17 during the trial or whatever, but he goes off to Walpole. And shortly thereafter, not super shortly, I guess in terms of the time that Jamie Fuller's doing, it's kind of shortly. But 1993, Jamie Fuller's mother, Celeste, and some other goofball, Edward Goulding, were arrested. And let me tell you what for. They were planning to break Jamie Fuller out of prison. So they wanted Jamie. This was the plan. Celeste and Edward were going to use guns to overpower the corrections officers when they brought Jamie from the prison, I believe at Conqueror Walpole, I'm not sure. And Jamie was going to slice himself in a feigned suicide attempt. So they'd take him from the prison to this hospital where mom Celeste and this guy, I think she was dating Edward Goulding, would overpower the gods with guns. But they didn't know in the state of Massachusetts, in an effort to save money, they had medical staff within the prisons almost 24-7. And typically, for some type of injury like that, he probably wouldn't have been transported to the hospital at that time because they had all the facilities right there. It's kind of a question mark, but these goofballs didn't realize that. And I believe Celeste had been drinking ever since this happened. People said she kind of dropped off the face of the earth. She was kind of involved in her community, but she pulled her shades and just kept to herself in the public housing development that she lived in. 
So it would come out later at trial that the state police got on this pretty quickly. Jamie Fuller told a cellmate or somebody else in the joint with him what was going on. They were going to try to break out. And these things never work. Just absolute nonsense. But they had no money. If you've got no money, you cannot disappear. And what are you going to run around outside the prison with your mom, Celeste? What do you do after that? I don't think they really had a plan. But the plan goes south when an informant is thrown in the mix. The informant tells the corrections officers. The corrections officers get the state police involved. And now they are acting like they're going to facilitate this. You got somebody on the outside willing to help you. And they're all talking about it. And they put Celeste and this guy, Edward Goulding, under surveillance. And they end up arresting them on August 13, 1993, before anything could happen, before Jamie could hurt himself in this fake attempt. So everybody gets locked up. And Jamie gets another nine or 10 years added on to his sentence. I don't know if they put it on consecutively or concurrently, but at the time, he was serving a life sentence without parole. And we'll have to come back to that. I think you probably know where I'm going. His mother, Celeste, and this guy, Goulding, I think was sentenced to about six to nine years in prison. I don't know how much they ended up serving. And... What do you get out of these two? They're two goofballs. I think she was a raging alcoholic by the time this all happened, and she just couldn't put it together. But she ended up going to prison, and so did in Goulding. Did they end up doing two, three years each? Probably. So in terms of the citizens of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, I believe his attempted escape, and that's what he was ended up being charged with, is kind of a blessing in disguise. Because I believe it was in 2011 or 2012 that the United States Supreme Court changed how juveniles could be sentenced. You couldn't sentence them to life without parole because their brains hadn't been fully formed. And that was the federal decision. And the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court also instituted something similar, I believe two years later, where... The catchphrase is, the defendant has to have a meaningful shot at parole. We went through all this with the Rod Matthews case and a few others. Man, it's just like they want to handhold these murderers. What is it? You're going to look at Jamie Fuller and what he did to Amy Cannavale and say, okay, you've been going to a few meetings. Oh, you, you go to AA meetings all the time? Wow, you're cured. No. Dangerousness is situational, right? This guy Fuller is not going to go up against some big, strong corrections officer, right? He went up against a 14-year-old girl. It wasn't the situation for him to be dangerous in prison because he'd get his ass kicked. So I say the attempted prison break's a blessing in disguise because I think that may keep him in prison. So Jamie Fuller goes up before the parole board like the rest of these guys who were convicted as juveniles, and I believe it was in 2019. I was convinced the guy was going to get out, but I had forgotten all about the prison escape. And I think he withdrew his bid for parole because they're going to use that against them. He'll have to come up for parole sometime soon, maybe this year, 2022 at the latest. And He's going to be given a meaningful opportunity for parole. 
But what they can use against you in the parole hearing is your behavior while you're in the joint. An attempted escape is big. So that may keep him much longer. I'd say maybe another 10 years for this kid because he's got the attempted escape on his record. And I hope that's the case. And he's going to go to the parole hearing. And I, you know, I went to every program, inmates for puppies or all this horse shit that they go through and try to sell to you that they're normal human beings instead of deranged murderers like they're proving themselves to be. I do believe Rod Matthews from that case, he will get parole because he doesn't have that type of misadventure in prison. This kid attempted to escape and that may hold him in the joint for even longer. And I hope that's the case. Something I was wondering about, I was actually talking about it to my wife, this kid, Michael Mollett and Demule, whatever his name is, Mark Demule. What do you say when you come into the age when you want to get married and you're telling your wife about your past? Does Mollett tell his fiance, girlfriends, or whomever, his pot that he threw Amy Cannavale's body over the fence, that he helped hide her body, that perhaps he knew that she was going to be murdered? How does that work? And how does the person on the other end say, okay, you've seemed to have really changed. I just wonder how that works. But for right now, Jamie Fuller is in Shirley state prison. It's medium security. It's not heavy time. If you think people are out breaking rocks in Massachusetts prisons, it isn't that. It is not that at any rate. It's not bad from what I hear, but I'm going to have a corrections officer on pretty soon. We're going to get into it. But for right now, Jamie Fuller is still in the can. He should come up for parole, and I hope they hold him on that attempted escape, but I'm not sure, this being Massachusetts and all, you could find yourself on an MBTA bus sitting right next to Mr. Fuller, who obviously has a bad temper, right? So, all right, guys, I'm going to leave you there. If you need to get a hold of me, my email is barry at bostonconfidential.net. Otherwise, I'll see you on the flip side, and we'll get on to the next one for you. 